Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. Our guest today is Sunil Gupta. He's the author of the best-selling book, Backable, which is the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you and your ideas. He's currently writing a new book with HarperCollins about how great leaders reach new levels of resilience in the face of chaos. He's also the founder and CEO of Rise, a mobile health startup that lowers the cost of preventative care. It was named the app of the year by Apple and and he partnered with Michelle Obama to reach food insecure homes. Uh, Sunil is now a visiting scholar at Harvard University and the on-screen host of a new global documentary series sponsored by American Express. Um, And it is sort of the Anthony Bourdain for business. He showcases on the ground cultural stories of creativity, struggle, and sacrifice. So, Neil, thank you so much for coming on. Brian, it's great to be here. So, I know this is, you know, the Beyond Speaking podcast is the top, but recently you settled for being on Simon Sinek's podcast, if anybody's ever heard of him. Uh, That's actually a much, much, much bigger uh, deal. But uh, anyway, so you told Simon this incredible story about your mom. Can you share this with us? Yeah, Brian, thanks for asking. Um, Yeah, my mom is a, uh, in Time Magazine, did a feature on her a little while back calling her a trailblazer, a pioneer. Um, And, you know, her story is remarkable because she grew up um, in a refugee camp on the border of Pakistan and India. No running water, no electricity. Um, But one day she uh, discovers a book uh, by Henry Ford, his autobiography. And that's the first book that she reads from cover to cover. And she decides that uh, against all odds, she is going to somehow, some way get to the United States uh, and become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. Um, and her parents get behind the dream. They, they save every rupee they have to get her on a boat where she comes to the United States, gets a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. The day after she graduates, uh, she gets on a train to Detroit, Michigan, where she applies for her dream job. Uh, and she finds her way into a room with a hiring manager. And this guy, he looks at her application and he looks at her resume and he says, you know what? Wait a second. Are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she says, yeah. And he says, well, you know, look, I'm sorry, but we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now. Because see, this was the 1960s and Ford Motor Company was in its heyday doing very well. Thousands of engineers on staff, but not a single one of them was a woman. And so, you know, she is deflated in this moment. She, she picks up her resume, picks up her application in her purse, and she begins to walk out of the room. And, and then almost in this just last ditch moment of, of courage and grit, she turns around and, and she tells this guy her story uh, of all the sacrifice that it took for her to be in this country, for her to be in the city, for her to be in this very room. And then she says to him, look, things are changing. And if you don't have any female engineers on staff, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And this hiring manager is so moved in this meeting that he decides that he's going to go out and he's going to fight for her. He fights with his colleagues. He fights with his his bosses. Um, And in 1967, she becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. Wow. And, you know, the, the, the title of my book, Brian, is backable. It's all about how do you get people to take a chance on you? And and I went out there and I studied hundreds of extraordinary people from Oscar winning filmmakers to celebrity chefs to military leaders. But really the story that I had front and center the entire time was really her story because I, I, I it was always coming back to this realization that, you know, if a hiring manager from suburban Michigan hadn't taken a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world, then I wouldn't be here right now talking with you. 
Where do you think that that sort of grit and determination came from with her? I mean, obviously, I can make some guesses, but I'd love to hear you know where yeah. you know, where it comes from. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it's a it's a great question. You know, I think a lot of it is you know I think there is uh, you know something to the idea of refugee level resilience, and and I don't necessarily think you need to be a refugee to have it, but I, I think it's this this sense of impermanence and possibility combined into one, right? You don't really have anything, which in some perverse way almost means like anything is possible. Um, and I think part of that is that you don't know what's going to happen from here, right? Like th th there was a point in time in my mom's life when they actually did have everything and then it was all taken from them. You know, my, my, my grandfather owned a, a store uh, when what is now called Pakistan and, and, you know, he was a merchant and he did pretty well. And then all of a sudden, one day they had to flee their home. It was burnt to the ground. And so, you know, I, I think there's this sense of, you know, when you know that it can all be taken away, um, you also know that it can all be sort of received and you kind of, you kind of just stop waiting. Um, I always say that my mom likes to play the game of now instead of the game of someday. And, you know, I think the difference between those two games is that in the game of someday, you, you know, action follows courage with the game of someday. So you kind of muster up enough courage and then you take action. But I think in the game of now, you just take action and the courage follows. And I think that's the mistake that I think sometimes I, 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 I can sometimes make. I see other people make is that we wait for courage in order to take action when I think it's really the other way around. One thing I've always found fascinating is a lot of times kids don't know these stories about their parents. Yeah. Till you know, like I had no idea and I'm 50 now. And I'm all... So did you know this story about your mom growing up or is it just something you found out relatively recently? Yeah. You know, my, so my older brother is in, in media. He, he's a, he's a uh, correspondent for CNN and, you know, the two of us uh, about 10 years ago decided that we were going to start uh, a project called the Kahani movement, uh, which Kahani means story in Hindi. And the idea was, hey, you've got this generation of people that came to the came to America, um, and their stories are are literally dying because they're they're passing away now. They're 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 getting old in, in years. And so, how do we capture these stories? And so, what we did is we started this movement where we inspired people to sit down and ask their parents these questions. And of course, in order to do that, we needed to model it ourselves. So we sat down with my mom and my dad, and we started asking them the questions. And, uh, and we turned that into a little documentary film and aired at South by Southwest. And, uh, and it, was, it was then that we ended up sort of learning these details. And we kind of knew in broad strokes, but learning these details. And, and, and again, I, I think the, the misconception that I had was that she was this this really courageous and brave person from the beginning. And it is true that there, there is grit and there's determination in her story. But I think above all of that was curiosity and action. You know, she just took action and then she sort of let courage follow her along the way. That is an interesting, you know, kind of process with that. Um, you mentioned storytelling just now and in your book, Backable. I mean, it's it's where does where does well first if you could explain sort of broad strokes backable then where does storytelling fit into that sure yeah yeah you know backable is all about how do you get people to take a chance on you and your ideas and you know the what we've noticed is that as the book came out and and started to do well you know we we knew it was going to do well with an entrepreneurial audience what my publisher and i did not know is whether you know how how this would be received by large companies. And, and, you know, I, I'm grateful that it has been because, 
you know, this book in a lot of ways was written more for people inside companies than it was for people starting companies. And the reason for that is because it only takes, you know, it only takes one person to come up with a great idea as, as you and I both know, but it takes lots of people to put that into action. And that's particularly true if you're somebody inside a company, inside an organization, trying to make change. Nobody does it alone. We need we need uh, we need our colleagues. We need other teams. We need we need people to to follow us on this journey. And what I hear all the time, especially from top performers, is that I have a great idea. I have something that can truly change the company, but I can't seem to get all the right people on board. And, and the, 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 the sort of the twist on it that sometimes it may, even makes it even more frustrating is that the bigger the idea is, the more impact it can possibly have, the harder it is to sell, right? And so for that reason, what we find is inside companies, people get frustrated after a while from trying to kind of create change that's meaningful. And they start going after the simpler ideas, the, the, the more incremental ideas. And as a result of that, organizations slow down. Uh, the best people tend to leave because they don't actually truly feel like they're having as much of an impact. And so if you look you know, at, at, at agile companies, companies that you know, we aspire to sort of move like, companies like Method and Lego and, and Peloton and Airbnb, you know, inside those companies aren't just creative people, but inside those companies are backable people. They have a gift for being able to walk into a room and get other people excited. Um, and part of that is storytelling. What we've learned from people who are backable is that you know storytelling isn't. I mean, storytelling has become this in vogue sort of term, right? And we, we, but we all know that it's not about just getting up in front of a room and saying, "Hey, once upon a time." This, this, and this happened. It's it's more it's it's more substantive than that. You know, great stories combine you know storytelling with substance. Stories tend to bring us in, but the substance actually keeps us there. And so the the person who actually sort of brought this to my attention was Tim Ferriss, mm -hmm. uh, the author of the Four Hour Workweek, and and you know, and, and a bunch of other books. And I was pitching him at the time on on a company that I had started. It was a healthcare company called Rise, mm -hmm. and we were in our very early days, and. You know, I had this sort of classic entrepreneur pitch deck. You know, it, it talked about market size and trends, and and in my case, I talked about the rising rates of obesity and hypertension and diabetes. And then at the very end of the pitch, I told the story of my father, and the story was that you know my father had an emergency triple bypass surgery when he was in his early forties, way, way too young for something like that. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember leaving the hospital and. You know, I was in the backseat of the car. I was like nine years old, and they had given us a folder, which with a bunch of discharge paperwork. So I opened up this folder, and inside the folder is a piece of paper that says basically how to eat at home, and it had things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts, and I remember thinking to myself like, we're Indian, you know, we eat Indian food at home, and that's part of our identity, and we don't eat that kind of stuff, you know, and I just didn't think that that diet was going to stick for my dad. And it didn't. He wasn't able. He wasn't able to keep it going for any longer than a few days. We ended up back in the hospital, and this time, you know, insurance kicked in, and the hospital gave us the help of a, of a nutritionist. And this person ended up customizing a plan that would actually work for our family's needs, for our lifestyle, for his work schedule, and it worked. And you know, here we are, over twenty-five years later. You know, my dad is, you know, I, I literally talked to him today. He walked three miles this morning. It's all because of the work that he had done with that, with that nutritionist. 
So I'm telling Tim Ferriss this story because our, our idea was how do you make that type of nutrition available to everybody, that type of that type of coach? And he's like, why the hell did you save that story to the very end? He's like, that was the most interesting part of your pitch. And part of the reason that I, I, I decided I, I didn't want to do that is because I felt like, well, aren't you know venture capitalists or decision makers, don't you just want to hear the data? Don't you want to hear the numbers? Like, isn't that what really convinces people? And the answer is yes. But that type of stuff doesn't really suck us in. What sucks us in is story. What keeps us there is the data. And as soon as I made that switch, as soon as I started talking about the story first and then zoomed out to the millions of people out there that are going through their own version of my father's story, it completely changed the tenor inside the room. People leaned in in a way that they hadn't before. And look, I've, I've, I've now, you know, I teach at Harvard and I work with a lot of executives and we, we've tested this over and over again, just simply flipping story to the beginning. Tell a story in the beginning. And then, of course, zoom out and talk about all the substance, talk about all the numbers, talk about why this matters to lots of people other than the central character in your story. That, that, that's, that's how you bring those two things together. Can you tell us a little bit more? You know, one of your, your central concepts is having a central character. Yeah. Um, you know, what, how, does that, how do you develop that in your own, uh, sort of your own pitch or your own effort to get backable? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a story. You know, one of the people that I, that I studied for my book that was, that was this was what happened with the dollar shave club, right? And the dollar shave club is a pretty well-known story, but what, what's less well-known is how they struggled in the beginning to get anybody interested in their concept. Um, you know, all, all of a sudden they become this darling in the industry, but they actually spent a lot of time, just nobody got it. And so I went and talked to the first investor and her name is Kristen Green. And I asked her, why did you invest? And she said, well, truth be told, I didn't have any interest in investing. I got the pitch deck and the pitch deck was sort of the standard sort of, you know, we want to revolutionize the, the, you know, the, the men's grooming, you know, industry. And she kind of rolled her eyes at it. And she sort of looked at some of the mark. She was thinking to herself like doll, like, you know, in terms of razor blades, they're very, very low margin products. It's going to, you're going to have to sell a ton of them in order to create a big business. She just didn't, she didn't believe in it. And, and so she passed, but she ended up meeting Michael Dubin, the founder at a dinner. And she knew he was the, he was new. She knew he was a founder and she's kind of trying to avoid him at this dinner, but he walks up and he finds her and she's like, oh boy, here, here we go. And then he tells her, instead of saying any of the stuff that's in his pitch deck, he says, let me tell you about the person that I'm trying to serve. This is a, this is a 20 something year old male who cares a lot more about his father, cares a lot more about his health than his father ever did. That includes what he puts in his body. That includes what he puts on his body. And he's used to a certain level of convenience because he's been shopping e-commerce for most of his life. But all that sort of goes out the door when he starts to buy razor blades. You know, he, he's got to walk into a pharmacy or a grocery store. He's got to locate the aisle where these blades are being sold. Half the time when he finally locates them, he realizes they're behind a locked security case. So he has to push a button. And he has to wait in the aisle while they make an announcement over the PA. And now everybody knows that you're the person who's standing there. But by the way, it's not just razor blades behind the lock security case. It's like condoms and laxatives. And like nobody knows what you're actually there to, there to buy. And you're awkwardly standing there waiting for an, anno an annoyed employee to finally show up and unlock this case and watch you as you make your decision. He's like, this is just the whole thing just needs to be disrupted. And, and so just playing this almost storyboard for her 
was what got her really interested when she sort of, he didn't have to at that point say, well, the whole thing needs to be disrupted. She was the one who said, well, look, this is obviously broken. We can, we can make this so much better. And so the point, the point is that sometimes simply by walking people through an experience, like taking a character that taking someone you're trying to serve and walking them through the current experience, you will often have people in the room say like, that needs to be fixed. That needs to be broken. And it's one of the most engaging ways to get people to say, yeah, what you're doing really, really matters. But oftentimes we skip that step. We go straight to the solution and we kind of skip sort of the, the, the making people feel that pain, right? By walking them through what's happening with your, with your central character. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in addition to the central character, I know you talk about having, uh, you know, building this tight knit circle of people around you as you're, as you're going through this process and you emphasize the four C's. What are those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what I found, Brian, and you may find this as well in, in, in your work is, is, you know, I think that the best speakers are the ones that come off as unscripted, right? The, the, the ones that, that almost seem extemporaneous, it's almost like they're, you know, improvising just a little bit, right? Um, but what I found uh, by studying, I think, just great communicators, people who are, you know, exceptionally backable inside a room is that they, they actually tend to be the product of lots and lots and lots of practice. And, and counterintuitively, the more you're practiced, the more improvisational you can actually be. And we sometimes don't associate those two. But what, what we found is that, you know, backable people tend to play lots of exhibition matches. And exhibition matches are what I, you know, are basically practice sessions before you get into a high stakes moment. In fact, you know, backable people tend to play an average of 21 exhibition matches before they walk into a high stakes moment. So a big, a, a new speech or a new type of presentation or a pitch. 21 practice sessions, which I know seems like overkill, at least it did to me. But you know, what we kind of realized is that when you when you have mastered something at that level, what it allows you to do is drop your script so that when you walk into a room, you can almost be fully tuned into what's happening inside that room. And you're up on stage, you can actually pay attention to how the audience is reacting. Maybe you want to take an extra beat on a certain note because you know that's really playing really well. Or maybe you need to take an extra beat because you know people aren't really getting it and you kind of need to explain it a little bit more. But being fully tuned in at that level is just so important to become backable. But oftentimes we're sort of married to our script and we're like, all right, point A, point B, point C, and we kind of go down the list. And you can only get to that level when, you, when you've practiced. And we, what, what we found is that backable people tend to have a mantra, which is that you know, um, uh, long-term success tends to come from short-term embarrassment, mm-hmm. right? So play a lot of these exhibition matches, but do it in front of friendly audiences. And those friendly audiences, as we, as we looked at like these backable circles, who are the people that they tend to sort of do these practice sessions in front of, what we found is that there were four personalities four distinct types of personalities. And I call them the four C's that people tend to have, backable people tend to have in their circle. And the first is your collaborator, your collaborator. So this is somebody who, when you're with them, you know, you kind of feel like you're in a musical jam session together. You know, they're, they're using language like yes and, they're building on top of your idea. The second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because if your coach is, if your collaborator is telling you if your idea is good for the company, or good for the team or good for the market, your coach is really thinking about, is this idea good for you? 
Like, is this something that you're going to actually want to run with? Right. I mean, there's this great story of how when Martin Luther King was 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 trying to decide whether he was going to step into his role as as the leader of the movement, he went and saw one of his mentors, a guy named Howard Thurman. And what he said to Howard Thurman is, look, I think the world needs this. And what Howard Thurman said to him is, don't just ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs right now are more people who have come alive. And, and oftentimes, I think when it comes to projects, new ideas, we're very carefully thinking about whether the idea is going to fit the market. But we're not thinking enough about whether we want it. Does it fit me? Is it the kind of thing that gives me the emotional juice that I need to take it through all the rejections, all the failures that we know are going to happen along the way with anything that's brand new? And your coach is somebody who can, who can be honest with you, knows you intimately well enough to be able to tell you that. The third is your cheerleader. And cheerleader is self-explanatory. You know, we all we all need it. It's a little bit sappy, but somebody who is going to give you that last bit of that last bit of energy before you walk into a room. I mean, you know, one of the people that I studied for my book was Ellen Levy, who Fast Company magazine named the, the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. And she's got members of Congress and Fortune 500 CEOs in her Rolodex. And I asked her, who do you call before you walk into a big meeting, a big moment? She said, that, that's easy. I, I call my mom before I call and walk into a big meeting. I thought that was so interesting, your cheerleader. And then the fourth, I think, is probably the, the, the least appreciated, but potentially the most important, which is your critic. But I like to call this person your cheddar, because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, Eminem has this circle of people around him who are constantly building him up. But there's one character named Cheddar in the movie who's constantly kind of poking holes in Eminem's ideas. And what we find throughout the movie is that it's really cheddar that gets Eminem ready for the stage. And what we found is that you know the vast majority of us tend to push our cheddar away. Anybody who's going to poke holes in our ideas, we naturally kind of, it's annoying. And so we naturally kind of keep our distance from that person. What we find is that extraordinary people, these backable people, tend to really embrace their cheddar. They, they bring that person in because they know that it's really cheddar that's going to get them ready for the room. Nice. Well, one of the things you do, in addition to all this, you know, from speaking, writing, everything else, is you're um, you're hosting this new documentary series, Business Class, taking us on a global tour of business and culture. Can you tell us just a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was inspired. I was inspired to do this after taking a trip to Bhutan, um, and you know, Bhutan is an interesting country because it is the only country in the world that measures itself based on gross national happiness. So GDP and economic growth are part of an overall metric about the you know, overall well-being. And they've been calculating it this way for the past 50 years. And it's not, it's not perfect, um, you know, but, but they have this very clear North Star. And um, you know, a lot of countries look to Bhutan now as, hey, can we do a little bit more of what they, what they have going on over there? Um, and when I was on the ground, I had a chance to spend time with the research team. And one of the questions that I asked them was, hey, as you're talking to people, is there one question that you can ask that can really give you a good sense of whether that person is happy? And they said, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is one question. And the question is, if you were in trouble right now, who could you call and know with 100% certainty that person would be there for you? And who's on that list for you? And they believe that people who can answer that question clearly have a much higher likelihood of being happy. But there's a twist. And the twist was, whose list are you on? Who could you call or who could call you 
and know with 100% certainty that you would be there for them. And people who can answer that question are even more likely to be happy to score well on this overall sort of survey that they do. In other words, it's not who's on your list, it's, it's whose list are you on, right? And, and I, 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 I thought that was so interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one is like, how often do we put some thought into who's on that list, right? Who, or whose list are we on? And, you know, one of the things that I, that, that, you know, we, we, we do as an audience, we do this together when I'm, when I'm giving talks is we will literally sit there for a minute and we'll just jot down three to five names of people who could call us. And no matter what, we're going to jump in a car, we're going to jump in a plane, we're going to be there for that person. And then we ask, we'll ask ourselves a question. Do they know that? Are they aware? Right? Because especially if you don't live with them and you don't see them every day, it may turn out that the, 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 the people who are on your list are actually not totally 100% sure if they can call you and know that. And so, you know, we all leave with a call to action of like, before we leave this event today, let's give that person a call. Like, let's let them know. So final question here. We did get some, some help from your team here on this one. So, you know, you're well known as, you know, a speaker, writer, uh, you know, with television, everything else, author. Uh, but, you know, we try not to practice too much gotcha journalism, but we, we heard that you did at one time have a run-in with the law and it was tied to your passion for uh, karaoke. Can you uh, share with us, one, your passion of karaoke and two, you know, kind of how that almost got you in trouble? <laughs> Wait. Okay. So I do have a passion for karaoke, but you're going to have to remind me I'm not running with the law. I was told that one time, one of your, uh, your family karaoke parties got so oh, out gosh. of hand. Okay. Okay. All right, All right. There you go. Okay. Now I get it. Now I get it. So that's my dad. Yes. So, you know, it was interesting. So my parents, yeah, we, we're a Detroit family pretty through and through. And my parents both, you know, ended up uh, as engineers. It's funny, funny, quick story about how my, my mom met my, 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 my dad, you know, she becomes, she gets this new role as Ford's first female engineer and uh, she's single and she's, you know, one day driving her car and, you know, ironically her car actually breaks down. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, she pops the hood, realizes she needs a new part. And so she literally walks to a phone booth because they had phone booths back then. This is outside of Ann Arbor. So she walks into town. She, she they had literally a phone book, you know, one of those phone books is attached by the wire to the phone. Mm -hmm. And she calls the most common Indian name that she can think of. And the guy, <laughs> and the guy who answers the phone is my father. <laughs> that's how they meet. Oh, wow. And, yeah. <laughs> and my dad, my mom and my dad ended up both working for Ford Motor Company. They were there for over 35 years. In, in, you know, in the early 2000s, things got really rough um, here in Michigan. Uh, they both got laid off from their jobs. Um, and, you know, they, it, they were pretty young. They were, they were in their 50s at that point. And they were trying to figure out sort of, I think, as, as a lot of people who are unexpectedly sort of their, their careers are cut short, what do you do now? What, what do you, what, how, how do we spend our time? And I think it was a little rough on them, but, but eventually they discovered. It was funny. One day I get a call from my dad and he's like, what do you know about Napster? And I'm like, well, why, why are you asking me that, Dad? And he's like, well, I want to download, I want to download Indian karaoke music. And so I help him do that. And and he creates these CDs of Indian karaoke music, goes to a local, you know, he goes to a local shop, buys a karaoke machine. And then all of a sudden he starts, you know, my mom and my dad got into Indian karaoke, Bollywood karaoke, <laughs> and they start inviting people from the neighborhood 
to join them. Like, you know, Indian friends, a lot of them had already also been laid off, also trying to figure out how to spend their time. So these turn into these just massive gatherings at the Gupta household. So one day I'm in college at this point. One day I, I go home, I go home to visit home. And, and, you know, I just, I just kind of showed up and there were like cars up and down the street, like jam, like somebody's having a party. I'm like, who's having a party is <laughs> coming from my house. And right in the front of my home is a parked police vehicle. And I'm like, oh no. So like I walk up and there are two policemen standing on my front porch and my dad is standing there and he's, and he's like, you know, he's, he's, he, he looks like a million dollars. Like, you know, every time I saw him, he's always kind of wearing like, you know, sweat, you know, sweatpants, sweatshirt, you know, retired. So, but now he's like crisp, crisp shirt. He's, you know, fully bathed, freshly shaved. And <laughs> he's talking to these police officers and, you know, he's like, sorry guys, you know, and they're like, you know, just keep it down. All right. And <laughs> so I walk in and it's just this, you know, it's like, it's like a Led Zeppelin concert in there. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, Sunil, thank you so much for sharing these stories. Uh, even the ones you were planning on sharing. And uh, thanks for being a guest here on the Beyond Speaking podcast. It is great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.